0: Hey, Tamir. Hi. How are you doing? It's been a minute since we've recorded.
1: Yeah, and a lot has happened. We've had three birthdays to celebrate since the last time we talked.
0: Uh, for our listeners, Tamir and I share the same birthday, so we we, we always uh, are somewhat surprised at that. We're like, we're like, did we know this last year? Yes, we did. We were excited <laughs> and surprised them, too.
1: I also take it as proof that the universe brought us together for a purpose, at least one purpose.
0: Yes. Wait, who's the third birthday we're celebrating?
1: The podcast.
0: Of course, as soon as I said it. Yes, our podcast is a year old. It's a, a, a bit bad.
1: Yes. <laughs> No terrible twos, we hope.
0: <laughs> we hope. <laughs> wow.
1: Um, but it's it's been such a wonderful journey to be on with you, Allison, and with our listeners. And yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with people at this point where they've shared what they appreciate and value about the pod. And it's been such a powerful journey um, for me um, to work through some of the things that we've been working through. We said at the beginning that we, we do this pod, not because we have all the answers, but because we need it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's been true. Yeah. Strong agree from me as well.
1: <laughs> so happy birthday to us.
0: Happy birthday to, to all three of us, you, me, and the pod.
1: We're triplets.
0: <laughs> <The> triplets. <laughs> oh, so uh. today we're going to be starting a new two part two or more part series on money and power. And we're going to start off talking about money and just as we go into that Tamir, like kind of what's, what's been up for you, what's coming up for you that you'd want to share.
1: Yeah. So um, I have been doing some parts work over the past few weeks. Some patterns started showing up in my behavior, both in my personal life and my professional life that were having an adverse impact on Mm -hmm. the people around me and also a racialized and gendered impact. Mm -hmm. And when I first started getting feedback about it, it really threw me Mm -hmm. and like threw me into a spiral to be honest. And so I really started like with my partner and my closest friends and you and my therapist um, started to unpack what was going on. And what I started to learn was that there is a part of me and it's called the emergency manager Mm -hmm. and the emergency manager was born out of an actual life and death situation when I was nineteen years old wow. um, and its purpose was to keep it together enough to do exactly what had it to be done and nothing else Wow and it has been in some version of the driver's seat ever since mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and I think why that's relevant for today is that when my feelings of scarcity get activated, and we had our coffee break on Wednesday about fears of recession. Mm-hmm. And you and I both run, you know, sole practitioner shops where our material well-being, stability long-term and short term depends on our ability to produce revenue, right? Yeah. When that gets activated, the emergency manager kicks into overdrive. Mm-hmm. He's not relationship oriented, mm-hmm. he's not kind, and he forgets that we're in it together. Right. Mm,
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I'll 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 try not to to talk at too much more length about this, but I've been learning more about this part, and also the other parts of me and the other faculties that have been overshadowed by it or overtaken by it, Mm. and it's reconnecting me with a desire I've had for a long time to move through this work with softness, Mm. with full presence, relationally. And I think it's opening up a new set of possibilities for how, how I approach this work and approach the work in ways that both like over time produce enough revenue to live decently well, um, but also really honor my values. So it's been a hard, but really powerful journey. Wow.
0: Oh, I so appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate your awareness of like what part of you gets activated when there's scarcity and like that you're sitting with it, that you're talking to folks about it, that you are like clear that you want to move forward in a different way, that you don't want mm-hmm. that in the driver's seat for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I just appreciate, yeah, your vulnerability and sharing all of that.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm glad I shared it with you because for our listeners, Allison and I met Wednesday to do some planning and that part was coming out then.
0: Mm, yeah oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's me it makes me this is not what we had planned on talking about but it, it's making me think yeah. about like what kind of internal part comes up for me around scarcity and I feel mm. like this is like a ragged this is not a fully formed thought but the first thing that comes up for me is like I don't know it's like I don't know if it's like a victim part. It's like mm-hmm. it's a part of me that like shuts down. Actually, I don't uh-huh. know that. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know that it's like the opposite of your part. But it's like I hear mm-hmm. your part wanting to like move forward, get stuff done, like disregard mm-hmm. for relationship. You know, just like that. that, that, yeah. that, that. My mine like. Just go like I go in and I kind of shut mm-hmm. down and get I think a little woe is me like oh god mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to figure this out uh, like yeah. <laughs> but like it doesn't lead to a lot of actions so that's mm-hmm. that's really I want to think more on that and notice like yeah is that, that comes up primarily or are there other parts that come up but yeah stuff comes up around scarcity I think for all of us whether we're aware of it or not
1: yeah. I really grateful that you shared that with me and and with our listeners and I'm excited to learn more about what you discover.
0: Me too. We'll see. We'll see what I discover. Yeah.
1: And there's there's a whole thing and I think this was actually part of our initial plan for the show that like the parts within us actually can have a big impact on the ways we show up and therefore the impact that we have. So like yeah. when my emergency manager comes out I realized this is a thing I'm now building into my approach. It is not always, it's so caught up in its own intense needs that it's Mm. not thinking about the impact that the behavior is going to have, how things are going to land in a racialized and gendered way. Mm. And the messages that that conveys about the kinds of relationship and power relationship that I'm in with people.
0: Mm. Yeah. And
1: that is an expression of privilege, right? That I haven't, there have been costs for not dealing with that until now, but the impact on others is greater,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is juicy stuff. I'm excited to keep talking about it. Oh, yeah. should we let's let our listeners know, like, why we're even talking about this topic. Clearly, it's it has some personal yeah. pull for you and I.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this broader framing that we were thinking about with this episode mm-hmm. is you know, we have heard many calls from folks of color mm-hmm. um, asking, demanding yeah, white folks to give away money and power and Tamir and I wanted to get into what does that mean in practice like mm-hmm. we think a lot those calls are valid <laughs> we think that there's like a lot of <laughs> yeah um legitimacy to those calls those requests those demands but what does that mean in practice as you and I two white folks who work for ourselves and or whether you work for someone else too in different in different situations mm. Yeah. Where does this demands come from? What this? Where did these asks come from? What are their purposes? Do you think?
1: Yeah. So, I think the law. There's a long term answer to that, and maybe a short term one. And in the long term, right? Like we are the inheritors of a power structure that is rooted in an economic and military model, mm. right? Mercantilism, colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. That. Mm as a matter of design, literal design, um, extract wealth and resources, treasure and humans, right. From parts of the world that are not of European descent and place them into servitude through slavery, through, uh, wage labor, um, through suppression of labor, organizing through extraction of material resources from the earth, um, and environmental damage for the profits of very few and. We may not all be inheritors of that money, right? We're not all Carnegie's, but we are inheritors of that structure. And many of us, this can be hard to think about. I know we'll talk more about class, right? Like we may not view ourselves as wealthy, but statistically we make more than people of color for the same work consistently. Mm -hmm. um, And white men make a lot more than everybody else and more than women of color and white women. So like- those are all um parts of it. And maybe I'll maybe I'll stop there. I think there's a lot more we can unpack about it, but I think that's a good place to pause.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing and what I agree with is that these <laughs> these demands come from yeah, um from historical and present power structures that really mm-hmm. put us in the place of being able us as white people being mm-hmm. able to um amass wealth in ways that folks of color largely are not able to do when we look at it on
1: the whole. Yeah. And And just to, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say like, and that, like the ability of people of color to build wealth is so structurally limited in this country that even if you're a poor white person, your prospects are better than say uh, somebody who is born into a middle-class or upper middle-class black family for example. um, After the foreclosure crisis of 2008, Black families and other families of color lost wealth at staggeringly higher rates than white families, even though a lot of white families were also ruined by that crisis. And that pattern plays out over and over. Every crisis we go through as a nation, the COVID pandemic, for example, natural disasters, all impact people of color and their ability both to build wealth and frankly, to fund organizing to shift systems. Mm -hmm. So we talk about giving away money, A lot of that is, well, how can we personally equalize that? But then also how are we shifting our institutions and our policies, not just to equalize it, but to get to equity Mm -hmm. or sometimes requires more than just a formulaically equal investment. We're not even there. We're so far from that.
0: Yeah. And to go back to like real basics, like let's define what we mean when we're talking about money and power, if you like, they may feel obvious, but Mm -hmm. I think not actually, I know that- You know, in our preparation for this, we've talked about money being a number of things. So it could be literal, Mm -hmm. the inherited wealth from capitalist enterprises that extract resources and labor from people and communities or nations of color that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. It could be money in the sense that your hard-earned work earned you more money and more opportunity than people of color's hard-earned work did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we want to clarify that, like, no one should have to work hard, uh, twice as hard, you know, for half as much as anyone else, right? Like, that's yeah. like, like we don't believe that that's, that should be the case. And mm-hmm. we've seen in many ways where that has been and still is the case around yes. labor. And we've also thought about money as safety nets. So, like, both mm-hmm. financial and social safety nets, like, you know, not all of us have a safety net when we take risks that don't pan out, when we make mistakes or when we simply, you know, hit a patch of bad luck and, you know, something yeah. unexpected happens. And like, mm-hmm. I think about myself and my own business, i like you, you know, working by myself for myself, mm-hmm. uh, starting a business was much less risky for me, you know, as a mm-hmm. white person comes from a family that does have wealth than it would be from someone who doesn't have that kind of resource uh, or yeah. safety net. Which again, as we look at demographics and statistics, more likely to be Mm -hmm. people of color than white folks in this country.
1: And the systems, if we were a different kind, if we had different kinds of small businesses, the systems that exist to support small businesses would serve us much more effectively. And the structures that provide capital to those businesses would serve us much more willingly and gladly, right? Mm-hmm. Than businesses led by people of color. And that disparity is, is documented. It is evidence-based. It is consistent across the country to the point that there are entrepreneurs of color who have developed parallel systems, which while on a much smaller scale, get at some of those issues. Yeah. So it's like at every, at every turn, the opportunities for people of color to build wealth are more limited. Their susceptibility to both discrimination and also just like random acts of God in the universe mm-hmm. are greater and the wherewithal to recover from that community resources, like money we tend to think of as an individual thing, community resources are also less available. So we talk about, you mentioned school funding as an example, or just like, mm-hmm. you know, if you had to do a GoFundMe because you had a medical expense, how much money would your neighbors have to help you out?
0: Yep. That's a great, I think, specific example of like a community resource. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about power, we talk about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why we're going to do a whole other episode focused more on power. But just to mm-hmm. clarify that as white folks, we're likelier to be in positions of power and influence that can and often do have direct impact on the lives of people of color, often in ways that we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that this to be true in society, we know it to be true. Even in organizations looking to transform society, and even in organizations that have a specific commitment to advancing racial equity, Claire, mm-hmm. um, do you want to talk more about kind of how we how we know that to be true or what we see in those organizations?
1: Mm, yeah. So you you may have just mentioned this, but just to give one concrete example, so the DEI field, diversity, equity, and inclusion, has exploded over the past several years. You could take that word exploded in a lot of ways, but one of them is that there has been a huge surge of resources going into it. People hiring those positions, consulting firms growing. Um, And yet there's recent um, research that shows that 70% of those practitioners are white and that practitioners of color right now in this moment of retrenchment that is increasingly observed in the field are more likely to be let go, not to mention likelier to be less supported And set up for success in those jobs. And so even though there is like an attempt to like shift a structure of power by having this office and have a person of color in the office, which by itself is not, my, my words are failing me here, but like, that's not the end of the, that's not the end of the discussion. It's not the end of the work, right? Like even that gets undermined really quickly. And then the people who are making the decisions in nonprofits and foundations are still overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly owning class. Whether they came into an owning class or became owning class by virtue of being or management class by virtue of coming into these moneyed institutions um, and disconnected from communities and accountability relationship with communities of color or even working class white communities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and I have both done work in philanthropy in different ways. And as Mm -hmm. a sector, it's such a perfect example of this. You know, white people- who have come into wealth often through their ancestors' exploitation of folks of color mm-hmm. are now positions to make decisions about which marginalized people should receive just a fraction of that wealth. Yeah. And even if you're not a white person working for a philanthropic entity, you know, even if it's not your specific ancestor's wealth, those who work in philanthropy, it's a predominantly white sector and it yep. is people holding power over resource distribution to predominantly folks of color led organizations and communities. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah.
1: Yeah. Can I just add, I wish it were to predominantly organizations led by and serving communities of color because the data That's says hard. that it's not. There are That's reports hard. that are reports literally titled pennies on the dollar. Right. So even this sector that is supposed to right. be in theory, it's a mode of redistribution, but it's not because you can't legally give money to individuals. It's against the tax code. Right. Um, and and it's supposed to be addressing society's biggest challenges. And in study after study that shows that inequality, which is the language that the studies use is a major issue facing our society and therefore urgent for philanthropy, pennies on the dollar are going to organizations led by and centering people of color um and it's a a huge issue. So again, like when we talk about money, we're talking about both individual money, but we're also talking about institutional and systemic money.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you pointed that out because that definitely was like a misspeak on my part. The mm. the little corner of philanthropy I'm in is white folks who are working to move money yes. to communities of color, but that is so not the norm. That is just not the norm.
1: <laughs> right. And we're not we're not saying that there's no place in philanthropy for white people. I was in institutional philanthropy for many years. And in some cases, I was in positions I probably should not have been in, to be honest. Right. Like if, if if we were hiring by the standards we use now, I probably would not have been the choice. Um, but that doesn't, there's still there's still a role for white folks in philanthropy. So we don't want to give people that impression. But the issues around power are very real. And they do affect, I think they should affect our thinking. And we're gonna do, I think, a future episode on DEI careers and careerism um mm-hmm. on um how we should think about how we approach that in light of that that issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I know one place we've landed in our conversations is that, you know, none of this work, this anti-racism work really matters if white people collectively hold on to money and power. Mm-hmm. That's just, I don't even know if I have anything more to say about that, but that's just, mm-hmm. do you? Because that's just a place that that we've landed.
1: I think I, I might. I think that there's holding on to money and power is I think at the heart of what leads a lot of us to resist the work. Mm. And there are real questions and some of these we're going to talk about later, right? Like if I do this, what happens to me, Mm. right? Um, But we're not saying you should be broke and have no power and you are going to be subjected to the decisions of other people and specifically people of color. In our lizard brain, it doesn't feel like we're trying to build a world where we are sharing power, And in some ways, the term give up, it is literally required, Mm -hmm. but it is also sharing. I would much rather be in shared power relationships with people who I've built a container with, right? In my community, in Mm -hmm. my work life, right? Where we're like highly skilled, highly intentional about how we want to be together. And then I don't need the power. I don't need it now, right? But like, we feel like we need power because we have to have some control over what happens to us and how we're treated, Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say, hello, like that's what people of color go through their whole lives, right? They don't yeah. have that power and it has serious impact.
0: There's something there. And I, I think what's coming up for me and that we'll probably get to in our next episode about power is like, there are very different understandings of what it means to have power and hold power and share power and exert power. Mm-hmm. And we, you and I are not drawn to the kind of the zero sum way of no. looking that (laughs) or trying to invert a racial hierarchy, right? Like we're not trying to, like you said, subject white folks to what folks of color have been subjected to. We're trying to suggest that there are Mm -hmm. new, better, more liberated (laughs) ways Mm -hmm. to hold and use power.
1: But I'm Um, glad you said that because that's like the central narrative that the right uses to counter anything about racial equity. People who quote unquote don't work hard, want your money, right um, they want to impose wokeness on you, they want to force you to define your pronouns, whatever mm-hmm. um you know, like that fear, and it's been that way for a long time, right like that's how wedge politics wedge racial politics in America have always worked, yep, yeah,
0: I feel like I've gotten us a little off track <laughs> maybe talking about power. I don't want to miss the piece about class that you referenced. Mm-hmm here um because that's a question that we ask ourselves is how are we thinking about class and all of this are tamir are we asking for white people to give away their money all their money to organize with people of color or something else like what what's Um, the answer
1: (laughs) i I think we're asking people to do what they can and to be rigorous with themselves about what they can do Mm. right like i think like for, for white people who come from owning class or management class backgrounds, there's simply a reality that we can afford to give more away. Mm. Um, and there's a reality that people with less money are more proportionally generous than people with more money.
0: Pause there, because I feel like that's so important and gets mm-hmm. missed or like not talked about is that – Data that I've seen, data that you've seen is that folks with less money tend to give it away more freely, tend Mm -hmm. to already be operating in a way that's kind of more cooperative, more mutual aid based Mm -hmm. than folks with more money. So like, yeah, I don't know. I just don't want to lose that. That feels like really important, like name.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're working, if you're working in like a high money, high power job and you have a problem, you can buy your way out of the problem. You don't necessarily need your neighbors to bail you out. And yeah. often buying your way out of the problem involves putting somebody else in a position of service. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and often that person is a person of color.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In, in thinking about this question, this, you know, what is the ask of poor white folks around money mm-hmm. and power? Um, I looked to the work that Serge does standing up for racial mm-hmm. justice and, and they, their ask is for white folks to organize with people of color. Uh, poor white folks, specifically in this case. Mm -hmm. And they've gone so far as to prioritize working in states like Georgia, Tennessee, Ohio, and Kentucky, um, where there are larger proportions of poor white folks, working class white folks, to build multiracial movements um, Mm -hmm. that really are a space for connecting poor and working class folks of a variety of races. To build mm-hmm. power together. And I, you know, I yeah. really admire Surge and their work. And so that was, you know, I wanted to know like what are they up to? And that's something that they're really mm-hmm. explicit about. Um, is that yeah. that poor white folks and folks of color have a very aligned set of interests to organize around.
1: Yeah. And you know, I want to build on that because I think the, the classic thing that we hear from white people when we talk about wealth redistribution is like I came from nothing. I had to work very hard. What I have. And like I can relate to that. Like my family should have been middle class. We really weren't for a lot of complicated reasons. So, like, I'm familiar with financial insecurity. And I was shielded from a lot of its worst impacts. Right. Um, and what you've just brought our attention back to is that racial capitalism screws white working class and poor white people and people of color. And it preserves itself in part by pitting poor and working class white people against people of color. Yeah. And that's not all of it. Sometimes that's a myth that like we use to let middle-class, upper middle-class, like wealthy-class white people off the hook for their racism
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or their, their interest in that system, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's really important to name. So like what we say we need to redistribute, we're not saying that poor white people are responsible for giving all of their money um, to other folks when they're also suffering and in need. Yeah. Um, the answer is more, it's more situational than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally, I don't think anyone should have to jeopardize their access to basic needs, <laughs> like yeah. housing, yeah. healthcare, et cetera. Like if we don't have money for these resources, I don't think we're being called to divest of what little money we do have, no matter who you are. And I know that a lot of folks who may be listening- do have some amount of disposable income are white folks who are in managing class, owning class, who maybe even if you're not in managing class, like you've got a little bit of savings, you've got money that you can put towards vacations or things that are not basic necessities. Um, And I think that's, tell me if I'm wrong, Tamir, but I think that's who we're talking to primarily in this episode.
1: I think primarily, I think that's probably also our audience. Like I know there are working class intellectuals, but I know sometimes I piss working class people off because I tend to be a little abstract, so mm-hmm. we don't actually know <laughs> in terms of our listenership.
0: In terms of our listenership, you're right. Who, yeah. who knows who is listening? And yeah, I think what we but still I, said about class and digest. I
1: don't I don't know that that's who we're talking to. And I mean, I'm not I'm not here to tell anybody how to live their life or like yeah. how to show up. I'm here to offer, right? To make offerings. Sure. Um, but I mean, I live in the poorest town in my county, and I think it's like 90% white, mm-hmm. and racial justice still matters. We still stole this land from the Mohican people. Um, I think Mm. some combination of our town and the next neighboring town displaced at least one historic community, historically black community. Um, Mm. And there are people who won't move here because they get the racism where they live and they don't want to have to deal with the racism where I live. Right. And so like, we still have racial justice work to do, and there's still issues around budget. Like the next town over is considering uh, canceling a budget line item for a DEI staff member in theory, mm-hmm. because of budget shortfalls, but they fund the cops more than they fund the schools. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is that? Right. So yeah. that is, that is a working class issue because like we're working class kids sending their kids. I'm sorry. We're a working class adults sending their kids public schools.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your, your own kind of personal experience and situation mm-hmm. and drawing the connection between like, even in predominantly working class white areas, why racial justice still matters. <laughs> why it's still necessary.
1: <laughs> yeah. And how like money still matters. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not just, I think it's, it's too, it, I think you can go too far in saying it's all about the collective and I don't have to give. And mm-hmm. you can say, I feel a lot of pressure to do it all with the money I have. And I'm not putting energy into shifting the municipal budget
0: yeah. or how the
1: state grants are being used. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Cause like, yeah, there's money that is, that is our money that is in our hands specifically, but then there's money that is in the hands of people that we vote for or can interact with in other ways to influence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Let's get into how do you decide what and how much and where to give? So if you are a person, a white person who has some, you know, disposable or discretionary income. And you care about racial justice. How do you decide what and where and how to give? And what do you mean by giving?
1: That's such an important question. That's such an important question. Um, Is there, there are paradigms for, I I tend not to think of it as giving. I think of it as moving money because giving implies that it's mine. And I know you have, you have um, some thoughts about about that. I think I got that language from you actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, we're definitely not, no matter the the nomenclature, no matter the words we're using, we're definitely not talking mm-hmm. about like charitable giving where like yes. we are white saviors helping the less fortunate, like, Ugh. but it, but that does beg questions around like, is it reparations? Is it redistribution? Is it mm-hmm. moving money? And, and I don't know, I think of the money that that I moved to use your mm-hmm. words, it's like reparative giving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not full scale reparations like I'm one person right. I'm not a government of a country um but it is moving money it is giving yeah i i want yeah i guess <laughs> reparative moving money doesn't have quite the ring that <laughs> in my head but it's 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 moving money with the focus of repairing harm that i've benefited from as a white person
1: yeah yeah i i i think that that resonates with me and um I also like the frame of moving money because it's like kind of more utilitarian. It's like, where does the money have to go in order to shift power and and pursue repair for the harm that we've done at such a global scale?
0: Yeah. That brings to mind like the image of a puzzle, like where are the missing puzzle pieces and how can I Mm -hmm. use this money to like fill in that piece in some way? Yeah. Where does it it fit? Where does it go?
1: Yeah. And I know you've talked about the money that happens to be sitting your accounts, not being yours, and I think the more I sit with that, the more I appreciate it. And moving money is also not like, how am I giving my money away? But it's like, you know, I happen to to have legal possession in this moment of a certain amount of resources. And so yeah. like, how can those move in ways that advance our goals?
0: Yeah. And that's that was a question we asked ourselves. Like, whose money mm-hmm. is it? Like who, like, who does it belong yeah. to? Like, it, you just referenced, because like in my thinking about money, like I've personally have come to a place where. I don't feel like the money that I earn through my work is truly mine. Um, I feel like, interestingly, I feel like the work that I do and the things I create in that work are mine. Like those come from me. Those are generated from me. Um, But I feel like the money that I earn through the work I do is a resource that I steward for a period of time. I don't, I don't feel like it actually belongs to me if that makes sense. And like, Mm It's almost like a caretaking role, like some money I take care of for a long time. Like that's the money I set aside for emergency savings, the very small amount I've set aside for retirement Mm -hmm. Um, and some, some other money I steward into other people's people and organizations hands. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to clarify But I'm firmly not in the camp of this concept of like money is energy I'm using air quotes. You can't see them. Money is energy. <laughs> um, I think that's BS. I think it bypasses the very real things that money allows us to access or keeps us from accessing. Mm-hmm. Um, money is a real intangible thing. It's a very mm-hmm. real tangible thing that allows me to have other real tangible things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't feel like I have ownership over it in the traditional sense.
1: Yeah. I, I am I am personally a little bit on the fence about that. Like, I love the idea and I wonder what the world would be like if we all felt that way, that like we were stewards of money the same way we were stewards of land. And also what that would mean for like banks, like literally the structure of how money is stored, right? Like here's your allocation. You were responsible for taking care of yourself to some extent and making the world better. That sounds really radical. and It reminds me of the work that folks like Edgar Villanueva and the Decolonizing Wealth Project are doing. Yeah. I have to be really honest that, like, if you know, let's call it like the board of the movement for black lives, right, for uh, had somehow come into the sovereign power to take money out of my personal accounts and redistribute it, like, would that advance equity? Probably. Would I be pissed about it? Probably. So, there Mm -hmm. has to be some part of me that feels ownership over that. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that white people, Um, protect our privilege. And I I apologize that I am forgetting the names of the academics who coined this framework um, is to dissociate from our privilege, right? And so like, I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but like, it is possible for somebody to say, well, the money is not really mine, but still use it as though it's ours in a way that's like denying the possession that we do have of the money. And therefore sort of something, something further that further implicates us in perpetuating the status quo.
0: I could definitely see that happening.
1: (laughs) And like- I think I also, I'm cool with people having money that's actually theirs. like, I want people to be able to buy shit they want without having to ask anybody else for permission.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: that means like some amount of money should be mine, right? Like my wife and I have a joint account and we also have personal accounts mostly yeah. so we can buy each other presents, but <laughs> also so like if she wants to buy like another ceramic pineapple, I don't <laughs> have to approve that shit. Right.
0: Yeah. I think for me, that still falls under- love the pineapples. ceramic
1: pineapples, by the way, Jessica, I love you. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> go ahead. How,
0: buy all the ceramic pineapples you want. That's what I have yes. to say.
1: Um, we actually so- just got a, a doggy chew toy that's a pineapple, and we haven't given it to Hummus yet. Hummus is my new puppy, because <laughs> it's really cute, and he will destroy it instantly, and we kind of like it.
0: <laughs> Put it high up on a shelf.
1: It um, is. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: Very, like feel like- yeah, I mean, I feel like how you think about like the money that you have in your account versus your shared account is like still, still for me falls under the framework of stewardship and like mm-hmm. I don't know, just how I think about it. And like we don't have to, I mean, we don't have to agree about this. No, we because don't. We don't about like the dialogues that we have. Um, yeah, I guess like even in the the hypothetical, you know, situation you you threw out there, I don't. I think if like, you know, the board of like a, like Black Lives Matter or people of color led organization, like took money from your account. I also don't think that that's something that should, <laughs> should be able to happen too. Right. Like, right, yeah. So I don't think like yeah. money is not mine means that I can like go and take everyone's money.
1: <laughs> yeah. But like if the movement for Black Lives had the power to levy a tax, like a reparations tax that it could distribute, however, collectively saw I'd be a hundred percent cool with that.
0: Mm. That's so interesting. Like, I it's would, so, yeah.
1: I would way rather like have a significant portion of like, and frankly, it hasn't been a ton of taxes the last few years, but like the tax money that does come out of my like revenue go to reparations than to like the military or the that cops.
0: Part. That part. Yeah. I would also co-sign that.
1: Right. So like <laughs> if government is like our collective joint account, you know, maybe yeah. that's too esoteric, but I think there's, there's something to that. Like there is money that's not ours. And also like there are economic theories that say like the land we live on, we should be paying rent on it. Theoretically, that's property taxes, right? Mm-hmm. It's never really ours. We just have possession of it for a period of time. Maybe mm-hmm. that's another way of saying what you said earlier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think they're related for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: I was also want to bring it back to like us. Like there's a lot of yeah. nuance here. Like neither you or I, or you nor I are millionaires mm-hmm. or billionaires. We do not nope. control the vast majority of the world's wealth. Like, right. The limit to how much redistributing we can do, you know, with our money and, and that shouldn't let us off the hook for doing some amount of redistribution, doing some amount of trying. So let's get into what makes moving money, money so hard. Like, why is this so hard for us?
1: Yeah. I just want to notice we started with the question of how much should we give? And we're going to come back to an answer or at least a way of thinking (laughs) about it. So we didn't punt the question. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like our our notes are not organized that way, so bear with us. Um, say the question again. What makes moving money hard? Yeah, um, it makes it hard. Yeah. So I think the first thing is just scarcity mindset, right? And it's literally built into our our economic system and its theoretical foundations, right? That there's a finite amount of resources, material, financial, human. Right. At any given time, there's a finite amount of resources and the question is how you distribute them and i think the way that's translated and i wish i had a more like thoroughly researched response to this is that we live in a scarcity mindset that we never have enough that we're not financially secure no matter how much money we make right mm-hmm. um and that we have to fend for ourselves and nobody else is going to is going to do it for us um and that makes it, that mindset gets in the way of a more objective analysis of what we have and what we need and Mm. therefore what we can part with for the sake of living with our living in accordance with our values and supporting like racial justice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or
1: even just taking care of other people.
0: Mm. Yeah. Cause I feel like with the scarcity mindset, it comes from a place of asking, well, maybe it's related to a place of like fear that we can't take care of ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. Fear that we're not going to be able to do the things that we like, that we enjoy, that bring us, you know, yes, happiness that do cost money. And mm-hmm. like, how do we, yeah, how do we balance giving with taking care of our basic needs and also taking care of our not basic needs?
1: Right. Right. And I, you know, I think the thing that I think about the most is when I'm old, will I be able to afford decent end of life care? Yeah. Will I be able to live and die with dignity? Yeah. Um. And that's also, it almost borders on our definition of like a self-sabotaging question because mm-hmm. we don't know how much money that's going to cost in hopefully like 50 or 60 years.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Like Susie Orman, I think five or 10 years ago said, you need at least $1 million per person to retire. Mm-hmm. My brother has talked about wanting $8 million for, for him and for, for his spouse to make sure that they're insulated against rising costs of healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think I can safely go out and let him say, neither you nor I will ever be in possession of that amount of money. Yep. Right. Um And also lots of, lots of lower income people do live and die late in life with dignity. And there's other ways that that happens. So it's like the fear of the fear of it is like generalized and hard and like actually not that hard to interrogate if we let ourselves do it.
0: Yeah. 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 I just, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Like Like you just said, like, I don't make a lot of money. Like I'm not currently on track to be able to retire ever at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really wrestle with the idea of saving versus hoarding money. Like where, what's the line? And I feel like that's the, like, where I want to get concrete and objective because, um, yeah. I don't know. Is it, a, yeah. Like is a million dollars what I'm going to need to retire? I don't know. Four seems like a lot, four to eight. <laughs> like yeah. the numbers that, you know, you threw out between Susie Orsman and your brother. Um, mm. but like, yeah, like, I think that's where I want to get more concrete about mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah. Being able to save mm. and to have a, cause I, I share that value of like wanting a, a quality end of life and quality care. Yes. Um, Money is not the only way to do that. Yes. And it is a part Mm -hmm. of it. And like, yeah, I mean, I I would like to be able to retire someday. I would like to not fear becoming disabled, you know, before that Mm -hmm. point, otherwise not be able to sustain myself. And like, I think that's the challenge I'm taking from this conversation is like doing some math, (laughs) doing some math on like, what what would I actually need based on, Mm -hmm. you know, projections that are going to be imperfect, right? Like we don't actually know. Um, what it's hopefully will be, you know, at least 50 years from now or something, right. 40 years.
1: Um, yeah. yeah, that's actually part of the plan I've made with my therapist, because mm-hmm. one of the things that make my emergency manager come out is like, if what I'm doing now doesn't pan out financially and I have to change course, like what will I do then? Yeah. Right. And, and then like, how do I know how much it needs to make in order to consider it successful? Cause I love the work.
0: Yeah. Question is
1: like, what is, what does sustainability look like? And the only way you can do that is by actually making a model Mm
0: -hmm. and being clear
1: about what you really want out of life. I also love the question of like, how do you distinguish between saving and hoarding? Mm. And like, I have a, I know a couple of people whose parents are hoarders. Mm. And one of the things that makes them hoarders is they've gathered a bunch of shit that they will probably never use. And they know they probably never used it, but they might need it one day.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's the parallel with money, right? Like like I may not need that amount of money, but if I do, I'm really Mm going to have it. So I need to to
1: keep it. I think that's part of it. And the other part is like people really thinking it is theirs. It's like, it's mine. I earned it. I remember a buddy of mine. um, I was his RA in college and then he went to army ranger school and he came back from the military and wrote this like aggressive in all caps, Facebook post about the money that he earned in taxes and stuff. Um, (laughs) And like, I think that's a, for all the reasons we've already unpacked, that's a really dangerous and difficult way to look at money that like, it's yours. And like, if you have it, it means you earn it and you deserve it. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to say people are undeserving, although there are perhaps fair arguments to be made about that. I don't think that's productive, Mm -hmm. but just Mm -hmm. to be like, it's mine. So I'm keeping it. And I don't care if I ever use it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Eh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 I love the idea that just get bring it back to the concrete like making a model doing some math making our best mm-hmm. guess <laughs> and yep. you know our best guess might be right they might be wrong but that just seems like a little mm-hmm. more logical to me than just like keeping yeah. all of my money <laughs> mm-hmm. without having an, a model or a guess yeah. like like I want it to be based on something yeah.
1: <laughs> but I want to offer and this is to myself too because my spouse and I are still working through what our giving looks like Mm-hmm. Um, that like when we give it should hurt, and I'm I think what I want to try is like whatever number I come up with first, I almost don't want to accept it and see if we can do more.
0: Mm-hmm. To bargain with yourself, to do some some bargaining with yourself around, yeah. like Some amount could you give a little more
1: or a lot more? Because like the other side of this, uh, you know, like for a lot of white people, not not all, right? There are a lot of white people for whom scarcity is a true daily reality. People who can't afford to pay electric bills. They're mm-hmm. bankrupted by medical debt like or by student debt, right like there's yeah. a lot of ways in which our system puts people in like long term financial precarity, and whatever it feels like for us, it's worse and more real for people of color yeah. right for all the reasons we said before, and so like there's a guilt driven way of looking at that, which we tend to issue guilt driven approaches on this show um but I think that's a reality we have to hold, and it's like. Can we challenge ourselves around both supporting, organizing, and supporting people who are in need because of the system right now? And in the absence of a true safety net um, yeah. and real scaled systems, like small scale mutual aid stuff, community-based, nonprofit driven, even if it's nowhere near the scale of the need or the system we have.
0: Yeah. And so yeah.
1: can we can we work that into and like when recession happens, we just did a coffee break on recession and scarcity and, and allyship people of color are going to be impacted more, the needs going to be higher in the mm-hmm. impacts I already said that, but like so it's not just like how much but also how mm-hmm. what do we actually do? Yeah,
0: and I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but you know this question of like okay, if we've got if we've got fears about our own needs and scarcity mm-hmm. is in, in that way. Making a financial plan that includes moving Mm -hmm. money away and redistribution is like one strategy that Mm -hmm. we just talked about. So is moving money alongside other people, you know, Mm -hmm. concept that has existed in many forms in many ways um, Mm -hmm. over a long period of time where you're you're pooling your money to give it together. Um, Community organizations, you know, often have opportunities to give Um, even Mm surge chapters like, I think it can be helpful to work with other people who will help you gauge when and where and how much to Mm -hmm. get address that scarcity.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I was a part, uh, I'm just winding down my involvement with search New York City after having been involved for a number of years. And if you have a strong search chapter in your region, I really can't recommend it enough because it's not just like navel gazing people are really in action and accountability relationship. And yeah. that really makes shit real. And like um our search UR folks often say accountability is most effective when it gets concrete. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with money. It's like, can yeah. you give to this thing? Are you uncomfortable? Let's unpack that. But you're uncomfortable because there's a specific ask, right? That's triggering something in you. Yeah. So it makes it real in a way. Like we tend to talk about things in a little bit more of the abstract because we have to. <laughs> <laughs> but like pod work is really, really valuable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm realizing we jumped a little a bit ahead into solutions but we've got a couple more you know things that make yeah. moving money hard and and one of them is having ambiguous motivations for moving that money. Um, you just named that, you know, we, we don't push guilt and shame, um, mm-hmm. in the show in pretty much anyway, you know, it, we don't think it's a bad, we, we don't think it's right. an excellent motivator. We think it nope. is a short-term motivator versus a long-term motivator. So then the question we ask is like, what is the affirmative motivator, um, for mm-hmm. giving money? Like, what's my clear affirmative motivator? And for me, the affirmative motivator is taking action to build the kind of world I want to live in one mm-hmm. where. Everyone's basic needs are met and then some. Um I, for me, moving money is a step towards that, is a step towards creating that. And mm-hmm. it's also a step towards creating a new legacy that's more equitable than my ancestors' legacy. It's a step yep. towards taking the path in a different direction away mm-hmm. from exploitation and benefiting from that exploitation and towards folks having their needs met, specifically folks of color, you know, having what they need. Mm-hmm. So what's what kind of motivates you in a more positive way to move money, if not guilt or shame?
1: So I, I share the piece around taking action to build the kind of world I want to live in that feels like a good investment. And then for me, there is a piece, it's not quite guilt, but it's about living in integrity with my values, that if I really believe these things, it's not yeah. excusable for me not to move money.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That resonates with me too. I appreciate you saying that. Mm. And then another piece that that we know can be a barrier around moving money is overwhelm around where to mm-hmm. give to whom to give, kind of the logistics, the nitty-gritty, um, mm-hmm. like the overwhelming need, like there's so many options. There's always a ton of need. It can feel like, you know, it's never enough, which gets us mm-hmm. into these not so rigorous ways of thinking of right. Right. Like, nothing I can do matters, or is going to even be a drop in the bucket for all the need. Oh my gosh, there's so many organizations, so many causes. Where do I even start? Right. What would you say Tamir to someone who was kind of swirling in those thoughts of Mm -hmm. of overwhelm?
1: I love the swirl analogy. I use it all the time. Um, (laughs) It really does feel like a swirl in my brain. I would say it's okay to exercise some discernment in where you give, right. And you don't, you can't necessarily give everywhere all the time. It depends on the resources you have available. Yeah. Um, but you can give locally. You can give to groups that are focused on specific issues or systems like environmental justice or abolition or yeah. to mutual aid. It yeah. can be to organizations led by specific, I would say non-white for the most part, racial groups or coalitions. Um and you can like, you don't have to build a strategy overnight. You don't have to have the mm-hmm. perfect plan before you start giving. Um, an old boss of mine used to say, "Start anywhere, go everywhere," huh. and I really love that.
0: Love that. Even just the way you were talking just then felt so calming to me. I feel like, <laughs> like, kind of, you're like, it's okay to exercise some discernment. Like,
1: <laughs> you can globally.
0: You can give globally. Like, I yeah, I feel like what you just said felt very affirming. Of like, there isn't one right way to give. Mm-hmm. Like, and and you're gonna learn as you give. Like, you're gonna learn yeah. about opportunities or organizations or kind of practices that resonate with you for giving. Yeah. So a way that I try to counteract, you know, the overwhelm that I feel is that I try to give to a variety of groups and efforts that address different issues. You know, sometimes that looks like moving money when a disaster or a tragedy happens other times Mm -hmm. it's like giving to organizations so they can sustain the work they're doing. And I really try to poke at the judgments I have about what Mm -hmm. is quote unquote, good cause group or person to give to and to notice where bias is coming up. And and we'll talk yeah. more about that in a second. And actually, we're going to pause right now mm-hmm. <laughs> because we had so much more to say about money that we had even anticipated. So we're going to mm-hmm. pause. And next time we are going to continue this conversation and talk about how do we move money without falling into white dominant ways of wielding power. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. some of that bias. Um, and we're gonna talk about concrete next steps, what you and I can do um to make sure that we're removing money in ways that are aligned with our values. So stay tuned. That's gonna be coming soon.
1: And speaking of money, we don't do this for the money, but money definitely helps. So if you like the pod, if it's helping you in your anti-racist praxis, um consider throwing us a couple of bucks on coffee ko dash f i slash in it together allies. And we're very grateful for the folks who are already supporting the show and for folks who will support the show.
0: Uh, All right. Thanks so much, Tamir, for your thinking and your heart. More on money next time.
1: Next time. Bye, Allison. Bye.